Welcome, everyone. I am Bob Wurzelbacher, the director of the Respect Life Office for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, and this is our video podcast series that we call Being Pro-Life. Each month, we'll discuss a different topic in the Respect Life arena. We'll hear a personal story from someone deeply affected by that issue, and finally, we'll share ways that you can get involved. This month's topic is labor trafficking. Let's talk now with this week's guest. Will you please introduce yourself? My name is Christina Back. I am an immigration and family law attorney practicing here in Ohio. Well, thanks for joining with us today. So you're a lawyer. You work with immigration. You said that it's just that sometimes that involves trafficking issues. Yes, it does. So people who don't know, I remember when I mentioned that I was going to do this topic on trafficking, that my first question was, well, what is trafficking? So what is trafficking and what it looks like in the United States or what is the definition of it? So when I look at human trafficking, I'm looking from the legal perspective and the legal definition, which is what we would be using to deal with a case involving human trafficking or prosecution. Legally, it wasn't defined in the United States until 2000. The United States enacted the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, and that actually defined or gave a legal definition of human trafficking. The U.S. Department of Justice defines human trafficking as the act of compelling or coercing a person's labor services or commercial sex acts that can look different depending on what the actual case involves. But the basics there are that someone against their will has been forced to perform some type of service or labor. I think the legal implication of that swings very heavily on that it wasn't that person's will. Right. I think when most people think of that, think of being forced into working, you think of being locked in a cage, you think of at gunpoint, that's what the average person assumes probably. But we both know that you can be coerced and forced into doing something without any guns being involved, without chains being involved, right? So for the people who are listening, like, oh, how are you really being forced to do something if you're not being forced to do it? What, What does that look like? It looks like master manipulation. It is a mind game that the traffickers play with the victims. Sometimes it starts even with foreign residents. Someone will go from the U.S., meet with families who are very poor and worried about educating their children and say, we can take your kids to the U.S. and we can educate them and we'll, you know, we'll pay for this to happen. And so the parents give over their children and they come here and they're actually never given an education. They are put to work as child servants and the parents don't know that anything is wrong in wherever their home countries may be. So that's one way is that they lie. Adults are obviously trafficked as well. And they're often made to feel like if they tell someone what's happening, they will be in danger, imminent danger of physical harm, or their loved ones will be in danger of physical harm. And so that forcing of the labor or of the act, whatever's being asked of them comes from fear that if they don't do whatever is being asked, that they will suffer this harm or their family will suffer that harm financial. A lot of people are trafficked and then rely on their trafficker for money to be able to just take care of basic necessities. And so that's a way of control is that financial control. And we've seen some other ways of control as well, but it looks a lot like from a mental standpoint of what a cycle of abuse would look like and why someone may stay in an abusive relationship is a very similar mental pattern to what goes on in human trafficking. And that is just that manipulation and convincing the victim that they can't survive without this trafficker or that they can't be free. A lot of times they're told that no one will believe them 
if they do happen to be a foreign national, they have concerns about their status, about what would happen to them if they were just out on their own. They don't often understand the legal rights they do have for recourse here in the United States. So there are a lot of ways that people can be coerced or forced into doing something without being held at at gunpoint, so to speak. That's very helpful because it can even happen, of course, to U.S. citizens. But if you're a foreign national and you have no idea what the laws in the United States are like, it would be very easy to convince you, if you do this, you're going to be in trouble, right? Only I can keep you from going to jail. And right there, that's being forced, being coerced into doing something that you would otherwise not be choosing to do. So you said, Christy, that it was around 2000 that this actually got defined in the law. So what are the actual rules, regulations on trafficking? Is this particularly here in Ohio? There are bi-level laws. That was one of the earliest difficulties in prosecuting human trafficking cases is that typically the federal government only has power to make laws on certain areas and human trafficking wasn't one of them because it's considered a public morality issue and public morality issues are usually left to state legislatures. So in the year 2000, the federal government was able to add human trafficking to a list of federal crimes. So that did give some uniformity to human trafficking charges. And they did that through the 13th amendment and the commerce clause. So The 13th Amendment explicitly abolishes slavery and involuntary servitude, so that's why often human trafficking will be referred to as modern-day slavery. Along those lines, the statutes include the element of force, fraud, or coercion. Those elements allow the federal government to be able to legislate on this issue. However, there are still many state laws that deal with this issue, and it actually took a very long time. In 2003, Washington state was the first state to have a law on its books against human trafficking. And then in 2013, the 50th state actually finalized and put a law on the books against human trafficking as well. So it took 10 years for all the states to have their own law. And so that made it difficult just in the sense that if they arrested someone and they could tell that they were part of a trafficking ring or that they had contributed in some way to enslaving someone, there wasn't a lot that the state could do and could handle. Now that we do have some of those better laws and that uniformity, we're able to at least bring appropriate charges against people. It still is not a well-developed area of the law. I'm kind of shocked that you're saying these laws didn't get on the books until between 2003 and 2013, even for the 50th state to get on board with any kind of laws. I already know that prosecuting a human trafficking case can be difficult to do, but why is that? You would think if someone went to the police and said, this has been happening for the past two years, why is it difficult to prosecute a human trafficker? What they are looking for at both the state and the federal level is that element of coercion and force, even fraud, to prosecute those cases. Oftentimes, if the cases are too weak and they can't meet their burdens of proof, states will kind of lessen the charges. A lot of these prosecutions are happening at the federal level. You'll see maybe on TV or in, in a written newspaper, a big case where they've, they've busted a ring of traffickers. However, that created a double standard among human trafficking cases, meaning that the federal cases were tried and prosecuted based on policies that the federal government and federal prosecutors had used and and found effective. But you still have these state laws and the state prosecutors aren't as advanced or well-developed in this field of the law because it is a relatively new area of the law. And so frequently states will end up treating these cases as cases against prostitution. 
that means for the victims that whether they are domestic victims or foreign nationals, they can be caught between being viewed as a victim of this terrible, inescapable vehicle called human trafficking or being viewed as a prostitute under state law. And that's a really important distinction because as we've established, it all depends upon the will of the person. And if this person is being coerced, they're not choosing to participate in forced acts, whether they be labor or, or sexual acts. And so they're really not a, they're not a prostitute, but that's sort of how the law sees them just with where it is in its development at this stage. Similarly, when the prosecutors have to prove first the mens rea or the culpability of the trafficker, because human trafficking asks the prosecutors to prove that the victim was indeed being trafficked against his or her will, you have to look at proving the victim's state of mind. When the prosecutors can't hit that threshold and prove the victim's state of mind for many reasons, whether the victim has been so manipulated that they don't see it as it being a violation of their will or are uncomfortable testifying that that's actually what happened or any other number of reasons, the prosecutors will often resort to a lesser charge just in order to give some kind of sanction to this trafficker. A lot of times it's an unrelated really minor charge in comparison to the charge of human trafficking, something like a firearms charge. That's one difficulty that prosecutors face. Additionally, we do have a lot of these crimes that overlap with areas of immigration and and foreign nationals. So there are a lot of visa schemes involved in these cases. So whether someone was brought here like the kids to go to school, which really the traffickers have no intention of ever putting them in school, or someone brings them here on an employment visa, but then forces them to do other kinds of work or doesn't pay them. That's sort of a cross-jurisdictional issue. And so that can be hard to prosecute. What exactly are you prosecuting in that case? The fraudulent visa application or the human trafficking itself or both A lot of times people who are in the business of human trafficking and deal with a lot of trafficked people, we can think about massage parlors that will be run often by foreign nationals. They are owned and orchestrated by human traffickers. When the FBI or whomever goes in and raids these organizations or operations and shuts them down, they will often be so well organized, they just reopen under another name. The 2019 statistic indicates that businesses like these illegal massage parlors, which are hubs for human trafficking victims, amounted to $2.5 billion in revenue. So they are big businesses, which always proves harder to, to break up sort of the nexus of that group. So Christy, let's talk a little bit about that. It's hard to prosecute, but if you can prosecute, you talked about the reasons why it is difficult to prosecute, among them being if it's well organized, when you find them, they pack up, change the business name and go somewhere else and you can't catch them. It can also be difficult to prove the coercion piece because you have to get into what was the mental state it can be difficult as well. But if you are able to prosecute, what is the sentence? What is the punishment for a trafficker? And is it harsher for trafficking minors than adults? under Ohio law specifically, trafficking in persons, whether that be sex trafficking, labor trafficking, which are the two ways it's defined in Ohio, is a first degree felony with a mandatory minimum of 10 years in prison. The state of Ohio looks at sex trafficking. They've adopted the federal language, which is any minor under the age of 18 
induced into commercial sex as a victim of sex trafficking, but then also labor trafficking, servitude, bondage, slavery, those types of things that we've talked about as well. Of course, the judge could give more than that, depending on the situation. I'm sure that fines are also given as as part of that as well. And then federally, we are looking at some different laws because we would be looking at the federal court system. There are fines assigned with that and a maximum prison term of 20 years. If there has been a consequence as a result of this human trafficking, for example, a death, kidnapping, an aggravated factor, which would be a typical factor making something an aggravated felony, the maximum punishment increases to life in prison. Sex trafficking of children has some separate penalties federally as well, but it carries that same minimum 10-year sentence or 10 years in prison that that Ohio carries. So Ohio's laws are pretty similar to what the federal government has enacted as guidelines for sentencing. But of course, each case has its own nuances and so could result in different sentences. Wow, Christy. So let's get back to the immigration for just a minute here. This is somewhat of a side topic, but it's also true that most people in this country, it seems to me, assume that if someone is here and is an undocumented immigrant in the United States, the assumption is that they knew the entire time that they were going to be an undocumented immigrant. They planned it. They decided they didn't care. That's what they wanted to do. Whereas many times the person they trusted to bring them to the United States, right? They believed they were doing this legally. They had a job coming. Their paperwork was in order. They were doing what they were supposed to do because they don't know what the law is in the United States. They trust the person who tells them they know what the law is. Anyway, and now they're here in the United States and then they find out after they're here, oh, this isn't legal. Are there statistics on what we know of or what we estimate to be the percentage of undocumented immigrants that were not aware that they were going to be an undocumented immigrant when they came here? Whether that's tied in with human trafficking or some other reason. That's an excellent or question. No. I don't have any numbers like that available to me. I'm not sure that they're tracked quite in that way, but I'm sure that that number would be pretty meaningful if it were deduced down to a percentage. The more I have heard about immigration, the more it seems to be the case that you hear stories that people who are here in the United States, is they weren't aware of the rules. It wasn't a completely voluntary, I'm going to become an illegal immigrant. And then the trafficking can often be involved in that. So you mentioned massage parlors in particular as a real hotbed, if you will, for Mm -hmm. Are there other types of establishments in the United States which are going to be a typical hotbed for trafficking? And if so, how do we recognize that when we're using these establishments? A lot of times restaurants are common places where we might in our everyday life come into contact with uh, someone who is a victim of human trafficking. Nail salons are another place where we might easily find a trafficked person. A lot of times you won't know, and that's what makes it difficult. And as we've discussed, some of these victims of human trafficking are domestic, Native American-born citizens. Some of them are are international, and they've been brought here or have come here and been kind of swept up into human trafficking. And so you can't even just say, oh, well, it's the foreign nationals who work at the nail salon. Maybe, but you know, maybe not too. General things to look for would be appearance and mannerism of the workers that you're coming into contact with. Do they seem to have signs of trauma? Are they afraid to talk? Does their communication seem to be censored? Are there parent injuries or evidence of poor care? Now, 
you're not going to have very detailed conversations with all of your wait staff at a restaurant, but at a nail salon, you might spend a good amount of time talking to someone. You might notice a waiter or waitress also kind of keeping their head down or being shy to communicate. And those are signs that might spark you to just have a little bit more of an in-depth conversation with them. Not that they're going to tell you that they're trafficked, but they might say things that could lead you to be more concerned and to perhaps say something to someone who can help. The Ohio State Highway Patrol has a division for this. Uh, Most police departments have a division for human trafficking where you could just pick up the phone and say, hey, I met this person. You know, it seemed like maybe they were injured or they were just something didn't seem right. And I'd like to report this business or this, this person. And the people that work in those units are trained in how to deal with and how to talk to these people and investigate. Similar signs of that lack of communication would be someone avoiding eye contact or seeming unusually jumpy or fearful. If you, and again, you might not notice this as a customer, you might, but if you see the same person working all the time, appearing to be living maybe where they work excessively long and unusual hours, not free to leave, come and go as they please, like, oh, you have a lunch break, you, but no, that person has to stay there. Those are all signs that someone's being trafficked. And there's also a 1-800 number where you can report to the national hotline. That is 1-888-3737-888. You can also text B, the word B-E, free, F-R-E-E. Again, just reporting those concerns and, and then someone that knows more can investigate for you. For those who are listening on the podcast, that number is one 888 3737888. Can't remember that. As always, if you're a regular listener, CatholicCincinnati.org slash being dash pro dash life. All that stuff is also going to be right there on that on that website. So those are some of the things to look for. Of course, if you're sitting down talking with someone whose English skills are not very good, it can be pretty difficult to distinguish perhaps between someone who just doesn't speak English very well and someone who doesn't want to talk to you. But nonetheless, if you have these other signs and you look for it, you just call that number and you're not going to get in trouble for suggesting your concern. And it turns out- Correct. That's Correct. Are there other ways, right, that people can get involved other than just looking out for it and calling this number. The state of Ohio has some material available for awareness campaigns. There is a group called the New Abolitionists. The University of Dayton has a chapter. I'm sure that you know Greater Cincinnati probably has a chapter somewhere, either at Xavier or somewhere else as well. But that's an organization you could look up. Finding an awareness campaign or even starting an awareness campaign, the materials that the state makes available break down really clearly into fact sheets and different things, what to look for and and the number to call. So just sort of spreading that awareness, I think is really important as the legal aspect sort of shows, you know, this is still a new young area of the law and of injustice, getting that awareness out and helping people to understand that being trafficked and being under someone else's will doesn't mean that they're handcuffed when they're out and about or that they got a gun to their back when they're walking to do an errand or something something extreme. It, it doesn't look like that at all. And so getting people to understand more about what's going on will only help in the long run. Right. So Christy, is there a website you'd like to point us to to show us? Yes. So that website is www.humantrafficking.ohio.gov. It's a really well done 
website. And so if you scroll down on that homepage, there are a whole bunch of different links. One of those links is Ohio Coalition. So that's another place you could look to become involved and to take action to help stop human trafficking. Nice state of Ohio. It's got pictures of all the counties. There's a link also there for the awareness campaign materials. So if you did want to lead an awareness campaign, you would get all the things you would need to hang up and post and pass out right there. You can look more at the detailed laws that are here in Ohio. And then anytime there's new reports done, they'll place them under the data and reports marker. They even have, you know, where you can request a speaker. So if you are Hosting an event to bring awareness to this, you can get someone from the Ohio Human Trafficking Task Force to come and help you. So the website is, like I said, really well laid out. And so you can kind of go through each of those tabs, depending on what your interest or your curiosity is. And again, that number to report trafficking tips is present on the website, as well as the number to text. 888-373-7888. Right. And text to... Two, three, three, seven, three, three. So there's lots of threes and seven. Is there a reason why three and seven is chosen? Do you know? <laughs> I, was just I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Thanks for talking with us today about labor trafficking, how to recognize it, and even what to do if you see it. I think people were educated today on this topic, and I really appreciate it. So thanks for spending time with us today. Thank you very much for having me. And I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for tuning in on this episode of our Being Pro-Life series. Head to the website and view all the links talked about in this episode at www.catholiccincinnati.org slash being-pro-life. Thank you again for joining us today, and I look forward to being with you next time.